Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. On this week's edition of the program, it's a case of Arash Arish back again as I return to Rycourt to meet Rosaline Thompson rye to Shandangan to join up again with Hubie Hurley, and in Churchtown, I return there to hear more on legendary horse trainer Vincent O'Brien. Also, I look back on some of the many pleasant hours spent in the company of Johnny O'Mahony from Touring Dove and Bally Desmond, who died in January of 2015 at the age of 95. This weekend, Johnny would have marked and celebrated his 100th birthday. He was a mine of information on every single subject you could think of, and a historian in every true sense of the word. So, thank you for meeting up with us again. Good evening and welcome to the programme, and do step right in. Rosaline Townsend Rye was born at Folkestone in Kent in 1932. Her father, who had inherited Rycourt House, moved here soon afterwards. But not much awaited them when they arrived here, as Rycourt House had been burned, along with two other local big houses, during the Troubles in 1921, just a few weeks short of the end of the War of Independence. As I said, there was no house and there was, there was very little stock, there was nothing. And you came here then with them, obviously? Yeah, I was born in 1932. I must have been about three or four months oh, yeah. old or something. Oh, very young, yeah. Very young. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about growing up in Rycourt and describe the house to me. Well, the house was very basic. It was Their ambition was, as I say, to convert the, bil- the building, the yard, but it never it never came to... Oh, I had a lovely time. I often think my mother was very sensible. She just, the, the gardener that lived in a cottage right beside us here, it was the head gardener's house, and he had four sons. It was One of them was the same age as me, and we used to go out driving trees and birds nesting, and I never went to school till I was 14, <laughs> because the rector in Mavidi had a daughter the same age as me. Uh, we had a governess that lived in the rectory, and I used to go up every day. She was an amazing teacher. She was an old woman at the end of her working life, but she uh, was brilliant. I was 14 when I went to boarding school in England, and I was able to manage perfectly. She taught us so well. But, of course, during the war, you see, it would have been very hard to have gone to a, gone to a school. I, I remember there were English people in Crookstown, and they came, had a couple of children, and they were always telling about the nightmare of their children having lice in their hair all the time. <laughs> but um, no, I had a I had a great childhood. I had ponies and I always rode ponies. And then when I got old enough, I rode the racehorses. <laughs> yeah. 
during the Troubles then, Rye Court was burnt down, I think. It was burnt in 1921. 21, yeah. Uh, but it was empty when it was burnt, oh, you yeah. see, because my father had already inherited it. It was burnt uh, June the 21st, 1921. It's sad when you think of all the history that disappears in a house like that. And it, it, it wasn't the only house burned was in the oh, area. No, the, yeah. the, uh, Crookstone House, Rye Court and Forest House were all burnt the same night. And Shawara's Court was burnt. Uh, well, all the big houses were burnt really around here. You know, people often say to me, you must have interviewed a number of interesting celebrities during your time on radio. But I remind them that celebrities aren't always interesting, and interesting people aren't always celebrities. This evening, I want to introduce you to somebody who, to me, was a real celebrity, even though he didn't have the trappings of one and didn't want them either. Johnny O'Mahony from Ballydesmond was born 100 years ago yesterday, on the 8th of August, 1920. He died in January of 2015. My only regret was that I only got to know him two and a half years before he passed away. During that time, I was a regular visitor to his home in Turin Duve. The only rule was not to call before midday, because Johnny really liked his lion. Johnny was a farmer, a wonderful character, and a historian with a wealth of knowledge, a small percentage of which I was lucky to record with him. After we got to know each other, he opened up to me on a number of aspects of his life, some of which I decided were too personal to broadcast. At 95 years of age, Johnny was able to boast at having achieved a degree in third-level education and a diploma in social studies. On this week's edition of the programme, and again next week, you can hear some of the recordings I made with him in the best of company. In this piece, Johnny discusses the education system of old. The schools were packed with children that time. When I was going to school in Benny Desmond, that was... There was boys and a girls' school there, and there were 120 children in each school, and six teachers. And the place was absolutely jam-packed, and it was as cold as charity. There was desperate high ceilings there, and no fire on you, a wet old turf sometimes, and that would be all anyway. And, but I don't know, we wouldn't be feel too cold, because you see, we'd be out there... The march would be after walking a good maybe four miles to the school and you wouldn't be called for a long part of the day anyway. And then of course you would run at home and there was no cars to take up children and no bikes, no nothing at all anyway. And uh, I can tell you the teachers were severe anyway. They were boss in their own place anyway. You would tow the line. But it wasn't easy for the teachers to have say, maybe party in three or four classes. They couldn't teach them anything at all anyway. Yet it was, I don't know, it wasn't very easy to pick up anything at all. You should be very inclined anyway, if you were a bit of a laser anyway, and you didn't want to do anything. Well, you needn't do anything anyway. But you can tell me. Well, no, I can't say that. They were saying that the, the punishment was very severe in places. It was, it wasn't severe for I was going to school anyway. I couldn't say what I was treated very well in going to school anyway. But um, it was from 9 to 3 o'clock, but, and sometimes more than, than 3 o'clock then. And, of course, the priest would be in, but the priest would be in fairly often, and he'd see what was going on, and he'd keep an eye on everything. And 
I can tell you, animals wouldn't go to place anywhere at all because we, we'd be too much afraid. Were the children required to take fuel to school at the any parents knew that would have a, a turf, they'd bring a, a, a donkey load or a pony load or a horse load of turf and it would be thrown out outside the school and all of us would gather it in and pick it up in our arms and put them into, into a shed. But indeed, a lot of it wasn't too dry anyway, as far as you were certain. But of course, the teacher had advantage because he was always up near the purpose and his back would be to it, or she as the case may be. But and then we'd be sometimes when the weather would be very cold, we'd stand up all the wee fellas now there now, and uh, do a physical jerk like raise your arms up above your head and back and front and, and up and down to see you now would would put a bit of to put a circulation in there. That would be in the very cold weather. While punishment was severe at times, and the teacher was monarch of all he or she surveyed. According to Johnny, the real fear came on a day when the school inspector decided to pay a visit. The inspectors, they were a, they were a holy terror altogether. They, they were very severe in the teachers and they were very severe in, in ourselves. As a matter of fact, now I, I had a run in with two different inspectors. No, not that I was presumptuous or anything like that at all. But one day, Mr. O'Connor, my teacher, told me to put down the fire and the Inspector was near the fire and uh, God, he ate me up over putting two sides of the top on the fire. And the other uh, inspector someday, well, he, he he blasted me up for, for some reason, I think. Now, did he say, will you, he said, will you take your finger out of your mouth? Well, of course. <laughs> it was as long as it wasn't any other finger, one finger wasn't too bad. It was. But I mean, whatever vicious. Oh, no, they showed that monarch of all the Soviet anywhere, that, that's for sure. And the teachers were dang and ready to like, yeah. yeah. And of course, teachers wasn't a very good job. Well, when I was going, it was fairly good. But in the in the 1900s, early 1900s, I said that the, up, up to 1920, a, a principal teacher would only get about 20 euro a year and the assistant about 14. And then suddenly it was very much so, for what reason, I don't know, in the 1920s. So that wouldn't get you, but I couldn't even tell him. But it, it, it wasn't a really good job at all. I said that it was like, but it certainly was better than labouring. And I can tell you that anyone who that would have any bit of intelligence would go up for that if they could, and sure you wouldn't blame. On last week's programme, you may remember, we discussed Sean Clorock MacDonald, author of Magillamar, or My Gallant Darling. It was written during the Jacobite Rising of 1715 the hero being the exiled old pretender James Francis Edward Stuart. Sean Clorock MacDonald was born in Churchtown in 1691, and close to the place of his birth, Noel Lenehan tells me that there were three such poets at the time. He was one of, was it May yeah, poets? There, yeah, there were, there were three of them there. There was Angus, there was McGrath, Toma, and uh, Sean Clark, and he had, he had a learning school and all there, and it was kind of part of our tradition, and if we go through it, we'll say song and story, then it was very important to get a message across. Even, I suppose, we poets at that time, people were afraid of him. They could compose a song about you if they, who didn't like. At that time, they were highly respected. Yeah. 
Now, uh, poets were making a living from poetry that time, oh, but that, I believe uh, he didn't. He resorted to teaching? Or th- yeah, teaching, uh, basically. But, like, I suppose if you're a poet or if you believe in your history and things like that, it isn't money and it isn't living. You, you, it's to joy. You, to joy or to try and communicate your message to someone else and you're happy with that in mind. We're standing here beside this cottage and you believe this is where he was born for, for a number of reasons. Th- that's right. And if we look at that cottage just carefully, we can well imagine years ago that the roof would have been a thatched roof. But the stonework itself now, if we come close to that, it isn't cement that's sand between the stones. It's lime and sand. And that's the old type of mortar that was used long ago. But it's a pretty solid house. Even if we go up and look at the windmill now, it's the same kind of building that's done and the same kind of where the mortar is used again. And it stood the test of time. And uh, from that point of view, it's nice that we can stand out here today and look at the, hear the birds singing on such a historic little monument and a place called the windmill. Black and Magillamar, written by Sean Clark MacDonald in the 18th century. He was born here in Churchtown in 1691. It's where the road takes me on C103 on Sunday evening, the 2nd of August, and that's the end of part one. We still have a lot of subjects to cover, though, and a lot of miles to travel, and we'll make a start in part two in just a few moments and after the break.
So, kettle boiled, tea made, and chocolate biscuits gathered, it's time to settle down for part two of Where the Road Takes Me. And it's back to Shandangan and Fernandes we go, to join up again with Hubie Hurley. Last week, Hubie told us about his father dying a young man, and how his wonderful mother raised three sons and a daughter on only ten shillings a week, ensuring that her sons became qualified tradesmen and her daughter a nurse. There is, as we said, a horsey theme running through both of these programmes, and Hubie became friendly with the Rye family at Rycourt, and as a result, also became interested in horses. We were always horse friendly with him in a certain way without being too much with him. Like, and uh, we found him very decent, like, you know, for the people around him. Like, as I just said, where they were, that uh, they fed and buried everyone. Yeah. You know, they were marvelous people. And is that then how you got into the horses? And oh, it was a course that I was going to the races with him in our time, and I often took the horse around the ring, you know. We went up one day to Limerick with a horse called Double Daisy, and then Larry sat a bully, and I went into the house for, for water, and she said to me, hey, have you win on the box? We have to say, have you found a double daisy? Didn't she win? She yeah. did. We had some great times. I said, going back to the time I was doing a job in the yard, this fella came into the yard and his name was Tommy Finn. So what Mr. I doing was if a young fella came into the yard, I'd pull out the worst sauce and throw him over under. Didn't he pull out like a fina? And he would tell me if you opener. And of course I had a, I was up on the roof and he galloped down the track. And Mr. I was above and he took off his hat. He said, Hats off to you, Tommy. You see? So in the evening I asked Mr. I, what did you think of this young fella? The best in Ireland, he said, was he isn't hungry. He was an only child, old from Crossbury, wanted well said, and he turned out to be the best amateur in Ireland. And twas he was right, Agapina, in the amateur races. During the famine especially, and the ensuing land wars, landlords did not leave a good impression in the manner in which they treated their tenants. However, as stated previously in the programme, the Rye family, or Tonson Rye's, were good, kind and considerate landowners and landlords. It was stated that they fed and buried many people whose families weren't in a financial position to do so. Canon Humphrey O'Mahony is a native of Tomes in Kilmichael, but has spent all his priestly life in Scotland. If you want to know more about this area and what went on during these times, he's the man to ask, and he agrees totally with how the Rye family were portrayed. Yeah, well, I, that's my knowledge of them as well. I've never heard of anything else of the Rye family in particular, but what was good, that they were good people, they were good to their neighbours and good to, the, good to their, the tenant farmers that they had in their estate. They were all considered very supportive, very well received, very well regarded, very well regarded. The Rye's are the only families that survived that era. You know, the, the Warrens left and never returned, and the Crooks never returned to Crookstown. That was sold at that uh, shortly after at that time to my, uh, one of my uncles, Dan O'Mahony. Because when, when Rosaline and her father came to Rycourt, he built a smaller house then, which he obviously had to do because the big house, oh, because had, been house had been burned. Yeah. yeah. 
what do we know about the train that ran through Rycourt? There was a single gauge train. A single train route from from uh, from Cork to Macroom. Yeah. Well, I can remember that myself. You know, my father travelled in that, and I never travelled in it. And then uh, that uh, that stopped for a while uh, with the passengers. You know, wasn't wasn't taking it for a while, but it continued on bringing the cattle. It was run for the for commerce to Macroom, and especially for the fairs every month that were held in Macroom. There was always the the trains came in to take the cattle back to Macroom from back to Cork to from Macroom. And there was a, a Point to point track on the the estate as well. well there was a point to point in two places in the estate. I attended two point to points. The original point to points that were held in in in, there in that era in Rycourt, up near the chapel in in Clodagh, side the wall there, and two beautiful fields. Uh, I attended two point to point meetings there, and there was also a couple of point to points at a later time down in the lawn in Rycourt. But I wasn't there for those. Racing and hunting, of course, were went hand in hand with that family for for generations. Yeah, and they're the best of horses. The best of horses. Flat racing mostly. No, not entirely flat, but mostly flat. And they had quite a lot of successes as well. Oh, great, great success. Especially with one one particular mayor that should never be forgotten in that part of the country. Wouldn't be forgotten in that part of the country. Agrippina. Yeah. She won two of the sandwiches up in the Curra and won several races at Malo and Clan and Tralee. They were great supporters of all the local tracks there in Munster, the, the Rycourt family. Tonson Rye. They had uh, Mitch Carden and um, Jack the Ripper, two that come to mind. I didn't know any, uh, I can't recall any other, but they had several horses over the over the years, just as the way as Dennis Duggan had in Warren Scott. At the same time, he had great horses, mostly he had flat and uh, national hunt horses. He won the Galway Hurdle way back with Warren Scott Lad, ridden by T.P. Burns. Well, Vincent O'Brien was arguably the greatest racehorse trainer in the history of the sport. Difficult to argue with that when Lester Piggott once stated, of course Vincent was the greatest, just look at the figures. And yes, the figures speak for themselves. In Ireland, for instance, Vincent O'Brien won 1,529 races. He was champion Irish trainer on 13 occasions. His record in Britain is of similar stature. His favourite horse, seemingly, was Najinsky, who made history in 1970 under Leicester Piggott, winning the Triple Crown, the 2000 Guineas, the Derby and the St Ledger. Najinsky later became a top-class sire. Vincent O'Brien was born here in Churchtown on the 9th of April 1917. Last week on the programme, we spoke to his nephew, Noel O'Brien, about his uncle's early life and career. Noel says one of the secrets to his uncle's success was simple, attention to detail. He was always famous for attention to detail, which is basically doing everything right. Everybody else had to have attention to detail as well? Oh yes, everybody had to. His right-hand man that time was uh, Dermot, and uh, if Vincent wasn't there, Dermot filled his shoes, and everything had to be done right. How proud was he of uh, Churchtown? And I know there were some great celebrations here in his honour. Oh, sure. The old saying, as Havis loves his native shore, you know, he was always a Churchtown man. I remember telling him many years ago that Churchtown had finally got around to beating the Scarlet in the game of hurling, and he was delighted. He was nearly clapping, you know. <laughs> it, was that as good as Cork beating Kerry? Um, to depend whether it was football or hurling. <laughs> <laughs> 
Not far away from Clash Ganev, the birthplace of Vincent O'Brien here in Churchtown, lives Jimmy Gordon. Jimmy was once described as being the best judge of a horse in Europe, never mind Ireland. As a young lad, Jimmy emigrated from Wexford to Cork and here to Churchtown to work for Vincent O'Brien. I was down in Wexford and a man called Halley came down to buy a horse that I was riding below. He was a hunter and he bought the horse and he said, this is that isn't not too bad to ride. And Vincent O'Brien is mad looking for a lad. Would I ever go up? So that's how it started. And what were your first impressions of him? Well, you see, you're a young lad at that time and, you know, you get in there and mixed up with the Cork people, which the language that I didn't know too well. <laughs> I couldn't understand it or anything. But anyway, I got used to it. But anyway, when, when I got to know him, he was a real gentleman. And all you have to do is do your job, be nice and... He was a real professional in his job. What was your job in those early days? I was a groom, actually, uh, and riding horses, exercises in the mornings. And over then, my first really uh, venture was to Cheltenham. And I, I came in 48 and 49. Then he had the first ever of horses from Shannon to Bristol. Three horses, Hatton's Grace, College and Castellum, in a plane. It took three hours and all the three of them won over in Cheltenham. So that was my first real adventure over in Snowbride. And he came to be the most professional trainer of all times. He was by far the best, and no, no one ever like him ever again. He won three Grand National with three different horses. He won seven derbies. He won everything that was going. He was the real professional, but he had to do the thing proper and right. Everything was above board. He always see in front of me. When he was the first man even to bring the Northern dancers, that was the Saddler's Well breed, from America, he went over and he brought him over to England and Ireland. You know, he was real before his time. He could see more than any of the rest of them that I saw, you know, during life. I was going to ask you that. What do you think made him so special as a trainer? That's what made him so special because he had a great eye for a horse. You know, he was professional in his job and everything had to be spot on and everything had to be done so right. And if you didn't do it once, you get the road. <laughs> and that was it. And no more about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Time again on the programme to reflect on the recordings I made with the late Johnny O'Mahony of Touring Dove Bally Desmond. Johnny was born 100 years ago yesterday, but died in January 2015 at the age of 95. In this recording, we hear his view on how a lot of landlords treated their tenants, and not very favourably by all accounts. They, they made him pay extra heavy rents altogether. And if he weren't able to pay it, it doesn't matter how many it would be in the family. Out the door you would go and they'd, they'd give it over to someone that would pay, pay the rent for him. And then, of course, there was one thing certain. They had, you couldn't fish, hunt or shoot in your own land. And I think that was desperate. But what was worse, when they sold the rights away to the farmers, they still kept the game rights. And I think that wasn't right at all because they, in the first instance they had no right to the rent and they had no right to the game rights and they had no right to anything. You must have heard about uh, a lot of evictions back in those days. Oh my God, it would, it would, it would break your heart. It would break your heart. You hear what children know and families and big families and put out in the roadside and they might make a bit of a hotel or something. And there and then, of course, well, then they start to go on the road, and that's what our, our present travellers know, that's where they originated from. There were people that were that lost their land. There were people that were evicted. But evicted, yeah. that's right, all right. 
And uh, it, it, was there any sympathy shown whatsoever? Not the slightest bit. Not the slightest bit. The money was the important point. The landlord, the landlord made the laws and he administered the laws. So if you were somebody that went to court, a man of no property or a woman of no property, you certainly wouldn't get much hearing there. You would whoever be independent on the other side. If he was one up, he would get he would get all the sympathy. So, for instance, if you were renting a house here, say on this land owned by a landlord, yeah. and there was the facility to to hunt, to shoot, and to fish here, you weren't allowed legally to do that. You weren't. But you'd be taken to court. Do you know that? No. Yeah. Even though it was on land that you were renting yourself. Even that was not, and even later on, I'm just talking when people had bought the bought the land and paying so much a year rent for it. This landlord still kept the, the, the game rights. Yeah. But thanks be to God, that's all over now. We don't hear a word about it now because the, the, the landlords are gone anyway. That, that, that inside sign or a trace of anyone, and that's no great harm either. And when people were evicted, did it happen on a few occasions where the neighbours then boycotted that landlord and nobody would take that house? They did try to that all right, but I must tell you, they were saying, say, you know, that if a man, you know, that took land where a person would be put out of, that they were grabbers. The only way I think that would be called a grabber is this. If we bid more for the more rent for the land than the original man was giving, you see. Mm-hmm. But that's only was very, very occasionally that ever happened at all, anywhere. But then again, that was the only way of living people had was a bit of land, you see. To grow those spots in it, or cabbage, or potatoes, or, or turnips, or whatever you, you like. Anyway, and the land was most important to keep something, to keep something on the table to keep you alive. And of course, the housing was outrageously bad at that particular time. There were hovels. Sometimes the farmer would have a good few acres of land would build a couple of small houses, cabins they'd call them, and then he'd let newly married couples that wouldn't have any property of their own in there to that that house on condition that he that that man would work for him for so many days a year and he would also get a bit of land to set his potatoes in because that was the newly married man's only way of uh, having something eat. And that brings part two of this evening's programme to a close. But we put the finishing touches to it in part three directly after the break. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Well, one stark reminder of dark days in Ireland would be that of Killini, our children's burial grounds, where unbaptized children were laid to rest, often in the veil of darkness or secrecy of nighttime. Convicted murderers, victims of suicide, or those whose religion was unknown were also buried together in these sites. In a past edition of Where the Road Takes Me, we discovered more about Killini with William Casey. But here at Mount Bridget, bordering between Churchtown and Buttevant, Noel Lenehan shows me a killeen that he discovered and restored. When I was going to school long ago, I passed it every morning in the bicycle, and I often thought where the old church was built, and I heard people talking about it afterwards and before that, about where unbaptized babies were buried. And I often thought of those things. I said, couldn't I have been a statistic like that and deprived of a proper burial or a baptism. So I suppose in the year 2000 there, I was doing a a university course on community work and things like that. And towards the end of the course, you were given a project to do, maybe going to a nursing home or something like that. But I always prepared to do something out in the country. And uh, I thought of this killing anyway. And uh, everything kind of went very favourable for me because the person that owned the land was in America at that time. And she actually had a brother that was buried there. We'll say a premature birth or something was buried there. And she was anxious that something in that line be done. So I said I'd do my best. And uh, at that stage, to get into, we'll say, a field like that. There was insurance, there was planning permission, there was 101 different things. So my supervisor kind of told me, keep away from it. He said, do something simple. Yeah. So Too much I, trouble. Too much trouble, <laughs> too much bureaucracy. But uh, I still felt it was the right thing to do. And... Um, I kind of said to myself, I'm going to go ahead with it regardless because my project would have to be done within, was it, a short space of time. So, And what was your intention to do with it? My intention was there was a white thorn bush in the middle of the field and a white thorn bush and I could see the cattle were ruining it and it was in the site of an old church. And I said, if I can preserve that, it would mean a lot. 
and build uh, some kind of a structure around it. And I thought and mentioned it to a few people, they said railings and things like that. And no, I said if I could do it with limestone, dry stone work, because the monument people would attack you if you use cement or anything. Mm-hmm. I'd have to scratch the ground. But um, it was, I suppose, a few days after Christmas, I went in one evening and I measured out the thing and I decided to do an eight foot stone circle and um, the following day I got stones and I got brought down the tractor next I suppose over three weeks we put up the stone circle another man that had uh, a relative buried under such circumstances volunteered to give me a hand what I did find was some bones and lime so immediately I left him I wouldn't interfere with him on no account we covered him up fairly quick and um, it might be an animal it could be an infant or anything I never got anyone to examine it but if it needs to be examined it is there at the base of the thing but thankfully the tree grew the, and it's gone strong since and the cattle can roam around the field now without damaging yeah, and you can pass between Bodvent and the Lascar Road you'll see it in your right going out and if the, the month of May now when that white thorn on Skjokjal the Irish name for white thorn when that blooms it is a beauty with the white blossoms and later on you'll have the haws appearing so I think it's a kind of it's worthy of its case for babies unborn and people possibly with suicides that may have it, they may have been buried there. I, I wouldn't know about the suicides, but like in the long ago, the church had very black and white views about what was right and what was wrong. But I think nature live in a place like that. It's kind to me. It looks well. And I suppose you have no idea how many are buried there. No, or I suppose nobody, because a lot of that was done at, in, in, in darkness. In darkness, yeah, yeah. Or late at night and things like that. So, like, we do respect them. And I suppose we have moved on a lot since the Council of Trent making all these orders to people. But look, uh, the human beings are there, and we hope that they're enjoying life or enjoying eternity or whatever it's for the rest of us. And what you've done is honouring those who went through very it, tragic times. Well, it is, and you see, the mother at that stage, or, or the, the, we'll say even the family, when they were affected, they got no sympathy. But it's, it's anybody's case. Over the course of both programmes, we discussed the life and times of one of Churchtown's famous sons, horse trainer Vincent O'Brien. In 2003, six years before his death, he was voted the greatest influence in horse racing history in a worldwide poll conducted by the Racing Post. Here in Churchtown, a man who knows a thing or two about horses and who worked for Vincent O'Brien in his early days, Jimmy Gordon, agrees totally with the result of that poll. Oh, by far, yeah. He still is and always will be. You know what I mean? That is, he done everything, achieved everything. He was a leading trainer in Ireland several times. In England, a couple of times even, leading trainer. So everything he wanted to do, he got. And that's, he was a real professional. What do you think was his most special win? Or did he regard every one of them as special? Well, I suppose his first wins was when the under Cesar Ridge and the Cambridge with Dry Bob and uh, Dry Bob and what other, I can't think of the other horse, Dry Bob. And, that was his first when I didn't know him. That was in his early days. 
you see. But since when he came then to go to Cheltenham, it, I mean, say, that was the real thing of his life, you know, to go over to Cheltenham, take on the English trainers and all that sort of thing. That made him the man he was. But his son was David, and he beat him in the derby. His son did, actually. So <laughs> that's... And it, in the finish, he gave it up, and completely... If, if he had to give over the farm that time, or the training to David, David would be still there instead of Aidan O'Brien. But... He didn't give it up that time, so Aidan or David chucked it all together and went off over to Australia, actually. That's where he went, you know. And that, that race that he took on his father, was it Secreto, I think was the name of the horse? Secreto, yes. Secreto beat Insignore, I think. And Grand Signor. Grand Signor, that was it, yeah. 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 How, how does he feel about that, do you think, Vincent? Well, I suppose. <laughs> I suppose. It was <laughs> kept in the family. It was in the family, at the least, at the least, but it don't you know it. I'd say he got an awful land because he thought that horse couldn't be beat. You've gone into training yourself, of course, and uh, I suppose you've learned quite a lot from him. Well, you do. If you want to learn, you have to learn. That's the place was to learn, you know what I mean? So when he wanted to go to Ballydale, he wanted me to go. He'd give me travelling headman, the lodge, and money or every winner. So a lot of mercy and my wife we had a little business in Churchstone. She said, that's fine. She said, if you fall out with him, we'd have no home to go to. So, so which she was right. So because that's the story about that, like, you know. So I started off a bit of training. I trained a lot of winners in pint pints and inside the rails. And I was the leading pint pint rider in 1950. What's the scene like at the moment for you? Relaxing, retired, <laughs> in my old age. <laughs> so now there you are. So that was my... <laughs> this room. Vincent O'Brien, legendary horse trainer, died in Straffan on the 1st of June 2009 at the age of 92. In the home place at Clashganov in Churchtown, his nephew Noel O'Brien says that it was obviously a very sad day. Very sad day. It was just the passing on of a great man. And that was it. He, he, you know, to get to the age of 91 was quite a good achievement. And he was very proud of his, I think, 17 grandchildren at that time. They were nearly meant more to him than all the winners. <laughs> Back in Jimmy Gordon's house in Churchtown, Jimmy shows me the many photographs on the wall that outline a short piece of Jimmy's successes and careers in the horse racing industry. That's my first ride in Punchestown, Gold Nugget. I win from Eddie Harty and the Ladies' Cup in Punchestown, 1958. That's Knockhard and, and Hatton's Grace jumping the last hurdle in Leperstown. I won three races with him, a uh, horse called Richardstown. He was second in the Irish National. And this one here? That's Mrs. Cho with Hatton's Grace after winning the Lincoln. That's me and a, as a young fella. And that's Bachelor's Walk after winning the Pint of Pint down in Liskin. That's Chiltenham number one. There I am there, laying them in in 1940. He won three champion hurdles, that horse. Which was the greatest horse you ever dealt with, do you think? Hatton's Grace by far, you know what I mean. Yeah. He won three champion hurdles, two Sadowards and the Lincoln, you see? He won the best horses himself in Cottage Rake that time, were the two horses of all times, you know? That's Cottage Rake now, there he is there. That's me as a young lad. That's when now you were, you were putting my arms around me, trying to, trying, to, trying to learn how to dance. <laughs> <laughs> I better go better than it is me. Really? Just joking me then, that's a solid Hatton's Grace, that's a solid silver. She gave me a present as a wedding. Yeah. That, that Hatton's Grace. That's, that's it. See, all them things I won with pint of pints and all that sort of things, you know. Yeah. All the silverware and things yeah. like that. There was a big right up there about the field and me there one week there. And what was your greatest success, do you think? Going back through the years. Ah, well, I had a lot of good successes, but you see, when you win first time out, like in the like, first of, time especially, especially like Gold Nuggets in Punchestown, they'd be the biggest, 
eating, you know what I mean. And I was third in the Galway, I've trained the horse called, uh, I can't think of my fan, I was third in the Galway plate one time, you know. That was a very good run as well, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And goes without saying, you were very saddened, obviously, when Vincent died. Oh, sure, naturally, yeah. Everyone, you know, we all sit very sad, like, you know. Which I suppose when he, he had a great life and a great, great age and that his wife only died there lately again. She's 90 years, you know. She was a lady from Australia, you know. So that's the story. Meanwhile, back in Rycourt, Rosaline Tonson Rye has been telling me where and when the family interest in horses came from. In fact, I understand that their first purchase returned a small amount of change from £60 at the time. My father always had an, an interest in horses because his only contact with Ireland was he used to come over and stay with the Delmages every year and they always trained racehorses and that's how he got the thing and then he just started started with point-to-point horses and he used to ride them himself and uh, expanded into racehorses. He did very well. Did the war, World War II have a huge effect on horse racing in Ireland at the time? I presume it did in some way. You could get, to get, say, to Mallow, to race or Killarney, you, you could hire a lorry that would take them. I remember my father running a horse. He had a good flat racing horse, and he was running it in Phoenix Park, and it had to walk into Cork behind a trap, go up on the night mail, walk out to Phoenix Park, and it was beaten a short head. <laughs> <laughs> what horses did you have then? Well, a lot of them kind of ran in my name. In fact, most of them used to run in my name. Agrippina and um, Double Daisy, Irene Dale, Jenny Pearl, Mitch Khan. They all ran in my my name. (laughs) You did show jumping as well in the RDS? Not not seriously. Only just when I had the pony up there. I think it was only one year I show jumped with him. He won won a little bit of show jumping, but show ponies don't really get it. Yeah. So it was Agrafina who won all the She won races. 10 races. Yeah. And uh, Double Daisy, she won seven or eight races. Jenny Paul won a lot of races and produced a lot of winners. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it all started purchasing a horse for £50, was it? Yeah. 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 And, and yeah, they both started with the, with the horse that was bought for £50. Agrafina's dam was bought for £50. And the first one that my mother bought was £50. Uh, racing was great fun in those days. You know, it, was no big monopolies who were all the small people yeah. <laughs> you knew everyone no big stables or anything no like there was no big like, as everybody says it's completely ruined now it's not fun at all alas time flies and not a child in the house washed Doc Martin was in sound this evening by the way thank you Doc the pipe music featured on the programme was compliments of that wonderful piper Liam O'Flynn and lastly but not leastly thank you for your company until Sunday evening next at 7 from everybody on the programme and myself John Green have a pleasant but especially a safe and healthy week goodbye for now
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.